0: If you are there in Psalm 62, would you go ahead and give me an amen, a hallelujah, something like that? All right, all right. Sorry, I, I was, uh, even though I grew up here, I was, as a small child, raised up at a country Baptist church, so I'm used to people saying amen and hallelujah, so if y'all can say that as much as possible, I would love that. Uh, I'm not going to force you, but I will make you very uncomfortable and probably keep saying amen, so, um, so I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture. And then um, at the end, I'm also going to do something that might make some Baptists uncomfortable. I'm going to say, as I close the scripture, this uh, this is the word of the Lord. uh, And I would ask you to respond, thanks be to God. This is a sign of uh, our cherish and our love of God's word. So in Psalm 62, uh, starting with the title, uh, in my Bible it's titled, My Soul Waits for God Alone. So the choir master, according to Us. Those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are but a delusion. In the bounces they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belong steadfast love for you are rendered to a man according to his work the word of the lord all right um let's pray lord i thank you so much that we can come together and confess our sins to one another and to you and thank you for the promise of your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for who you are, what you've done. My prayer is that I would make much of you and we would make much of you as we worship you together, as we hear your word, and we respond and we live out uh, in response to you, Jesus. So my prayer is that um, the words that come out of my mouth would be your words, that your word would stick and not mine, and that you would be glorified and honored. I in your name. Amen. So uh, I'm going to provide a little background about going into this, some stuff I was researching as I was going into this. Uh, the ministry I work with, we're big on a form of Bible study called OIA. It's uh, short for Observe, Interpret, and Apply. And so we start off, as we're doing that, with providing background to our students, and then we go into observations, what are you noticing in the text? And we talk about interpretation. What is the meaning of the text? And then finally, we close with application. How do we respond to God's word and live out of it? Um, And so I kind of followed that model as I was uh, preparing for the sermon this morning. So some context and background. Um, So the Psalms are weird, if we can just admit that. The Psalms are very weird to us. Uh, For one thing, um, we're used to reading a lot of things in the Bible as prose. Either it's like a narrative, it's a story, or it's a letter, and then we hit the Psalms, and it's like, what is this? This language is weird, and God's being called a rock, and he has wings, and it's very strange. And it's because it's poetry. And poetry is different than other types of literature. Uh, So we're reading poetry when we read the Psalms. We're also reading poetry that was intended to be sung. Worship songs. Uh, Poetry operates differently than other types of literature. We engage with poetry differently. Uh, in his book, "How to read the Psalms, Trimperlongum," uh, the Third writes of poetry that it engages us in a way that's different than prose. It actually really, in a lot of ways engages us deeper than prose does, because it engages our emotions. It engages our, um, our wills, even. It engages our imagination and causes us to, to, to use parts of our mind, and, and it gets into our body in ways that other forms of literature don't. And that's not to say uh, speak low of other types of literature, it's just it's different and it affects us differently. And so if we are to understand the scriptures properly, we need to understand the context of how it's meant to be read, how it was for the original audience. Another thing, the Psalms in a lot of ways get to the heart of the Old Testament. The Psalms, uh, because it is the poetry and the worship music of the Old Testament, It's assuming a lot of things that the original uh, singers would have understood. The biggest thing is that it it understands, or it assumes that the people who are singing or reading the Psalms understand the theme of covenant. So the Psalms are covenant literature, meaning they are based on the context running throughout the Old Testament that God has made a covenant with his people. There's some different things that that means, Um, I'll address some of those later. Um, but it starts with the idea that a covenant comes from a Middle Eastern practice of the ancient Near East uh, in which a political union was formed where a powerful nation formed a union with a weaker nation. And so uh, going into it, when God said he was going to make a covenant with his people, that's the assumption he had of, his, of the people who were making the covenant with him. He said, I am the greater power and you are the weaker power, but I am choosing to make this covenant with you. It's not an agreement. Greater power does not make an agreement. They don't have to need anything, but God chose to make a covenant with His people at Sinai. Also, going back to the fact that this is poetry, poetry has genres, and so the Psalms have genres. There are different types of Psalms, and so not every single Psalm is meant to be the same, read the same way, or sung the same way. It has different meanings. It uh, is meant to convey different ideas. The one we're about to go into this morning is actually a genre of the Psalms called uh, Psalm of Confidence. What that means, we'll, we'll go into that. But it's a Psalm of Confidence, that is the genre, and it was written by King David. So, going into this passage, I'm going to be honest, this is a, um, this is a tricky passage. Because David is proclaiming the confidence he has in the Lord. But it seems even as David is saying that, there's even some wavering with him. And that's hard. I think that's hard for our modern audience. I can only wonder what it was like for David in his life. But I believe that there are several truths which, which we can gather from this psalm. The most basic... I think is summarized in verses one and two, when David says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. And I think what David is communicating is that confidence and security come from God alone. If we want to boil this psalm down to one statement, is that confidence and security comes from God alone alone and is found in no other place. And though this concept might at first seem simple, we see how actually it becomes more complex over the course of the psalm. See, just from the beginning, David says he has this confidence in the Lord and he will not be greatly shaken. He um, talks about God being his salvation, how God is a rock for him. He is his fortress. But then... David changes. He uses uh, some different language. He uses, he's using a lot of metaphors here. He uses the language of a wall under siege to describe the way he's being attacked by his enemies. And so you go from David saying that he is confident in the Lord, he is waiting upon the Lord, and he shall not be greatly shaken because the Lord is his fortress. But then something weird happens. David acknowledges that he's in trouble, that people are after him. Something I noticed was that David's conflict was, or his confidence in God was not found in the absence of conflict. Did you notice that? David's confidence in God is not found in the fact that there is no conflict in his life. But rather, David expresses the truth. And here's another truth I think we can gather from the psalm. That God is our one and only source of confidence, not in spite of trials, but in the face of those trials. Amen. If we are to say that our confidence in God is solely based upon our circumstances, we are not truly confident in the Lord. And I love this because David was no stranger to conflict. Uh, Large portions of his life are actually marked by the opposition of his enemies. Right? He begins his life; he's a shepherd. Right? He's living a very, very pastoral life. He, he's just a, a child. He is a runt. Uh, no one really takes notice of him. And suddenly, God has this call in his life that he will be the king of God's people. He's a young man. So David goes from relative obscurity. He's working in the king's palace, playing music for the king, King Saul. And then suddenly he's thrown into superstardom because he becomes Israel's warrior, because he's a giant, and because he trusts in the Lord, he kills the giant. And suddenly people are writing songs about him, and he's this hero. But then what happens? His king hates him and wants him dead. And then there's all these chapters in David's life where he's literally being chased by King Saul. There's actually times where he's literally hiding in caves. Finally, once Saul is killed, he's able to come into his own and become king. But then as king, he's facing the commanders of opposing nations. He's constantly facing battle after battle. He's never safe. And then, even in his later life, when he should be enjoying old age and a reign. He is this man who uh, is a man after God's own heart, the Scriptures say. And then what happens? His son turns on him. Ultimately, David actually loses his son that wants him dead. And that's just one, a few of many different things in David's life to show he was no stranger to suffering and to pain and conflict. And so, these verses three and four, where it talks about uh, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. This could honestly. Refer to any number of his enemies. It could refer to simply his anxiety over his enemies. David has so many enemies, he's experienced so much suffering that he, this could just refer to any number of people who might attempt to depose him from his God ordained position as king over Israel. David's confident in the Lord, he will not be greatly shaken. But his confidence does not negate his current circumstances. David's confident in the Lord. He's waiting on the Lord. That doesn't mean his suffering and his trials disappear. But what he does do is he's honest with God and with himself about his situation. And actually, this is the proper way to um, go about this type of psalm, the psalm of confidence. It's stating your confidence in the Lord. It's that David is asserting his trust in God, though enemies or some other threat are present. See, I think there's this idea that's leaked into the church, and it's a false notion that the proper response to suffering is to deny or ignore it. We see pain in the world. We see brokenness. We see the effects of sin. And a lot of people think to be holy is to ignore it, to say, well, if I have enough faith, it'll go away. I've seen this negatively impact People I love. It's the type of notion that says, well, Christians aren't depressed. Christians don't ha- have anxiety. If you have anxiety, if you're depressed, if you have mental illness, you don't trust God enough. I've even seen it go so far as people to say, well, if you're sick, if you have cancer, you just need to have faith. It'll go away but that's not what I see in Scripture. So I can't wrap my head around where certain believers get this idea. When we deny suffering in the world a base uncertainty of living in a fallen world, we're not honest with ourselves. We're not honest with others around us. We're also not honest with God. When we're not honest with God. How many of us can say we've had times where we're not honest with God? we're not honest with God, we become cynical, and we distance ourselves from him. God feels distant. But David is honest with God. David is honest with God. And though his confidence does not negate his current circumstances, he's honest with God about where he's at in this unideal situation, David's confidence in the Lord, notice, it comes before his situation, before he goes into talking about the people attacking him, battering him, who plan to thrust him down, who take pleasure in falsehood, who... Blessed with their mouths, but no they curse. Before David goes into any of that, he first says, for God alone my soul awaits in silence. From him comes my salvation. For alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. David acknowledges his circumstances, but he puts his confidence in God before that. And that confidence colors the way he sees all of those circumstances. So I think David has a message for us in our world today. How could David be so confident and stand firm in God alone? His circumstances were bad. But yet, he was not shaken by his circumstances. And notice it's not even anything from David. It's not a character thing. It's not a virtue thing with David. David is not uneasily shaken because David is a great man. In fact, if we read Scripture, we know that David was actually really not a great man. But David is not shaken because his confidence was not based on the temporary conditions of his life. Rather, his confidence is based on the truth of God's immovable covenant with his people. Amen? Through covenant, God's people are not optimists who merely expect that God will change their circumstances. An optimist says, well, I can see how this could work out. It's all going to work out. That's not what God's people in covenant say. Instead, they see circumstances as they are. Oftentimes we see the prophets, they actually say, things are not good, it's actually probably not going to work out. But what they do is they find hope in the truth of who God is and what he has done. We can see this in David's language. By calling God his rock and his fortress, he is assured in the truth of who God is as a loving God who desires to be with his people. David was a warrior. He understood siege warfare. He understood what it was like to be on the front lines. So for him, a rock of defense, a fortress, was a comforting thought, and he actually understood what that meant. That meant something to him personally and to his original audience. To say God is my rock and is my fortress, He is the place I go into when I'm in danger and when I'm in trouble. He protects me from harm. The truth of covenant is that God desires to be with His people. And David is assured in that truth. By calling God His salvation, this language, we oftentimes apply this to the New Testament, but the Old Testament People of God also talk about salvation frequently. When they talk about salvation, they are reminding themselves of how God has been faithful to his people throughout history. So when David says that, he's not just saying, God, you're my salvation, you've saved me, but you've saved my people too. David is confident because of who his God is. And these verses. Would have spoken to the ancient Israelites. They're like their King David. They were accustomed to suffering and opposition uh, due to their geography, due to the period of history in which they lived. They were literally in the crossfire of some of the most powerful, hungry, and destructive empires in the ancient world Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Egypt. Throughout the people of Israel's long history, they had been subject to slavery, foreign occupation. Threats to the sovereignty of their nation, and eventually they actually were exiled. They no longer were in their own land. So to hear that God is a rock, is a fortress, needs our salvation, that would have spoken to them. God's people then needed to hear the truth of the psalm, and this is a truth that God's people need to be continually reminded of, even today. We, as God's people, need to be reminded who God is and what he's done. The reason, I think I see this all throughout scripture, the reason we need to be reminded is because we're the same as Israelites. We're humans. We have a very short memory. (laughs) Amen. Amen. We could one day experience God in all His glory and His power. He's doing these amazing things for us and the next day we forget Him. Right? The people of Israel, they did this. God literally opened up a sea and they walked around dry land and then they were grumbling about food because it was hot. They didn't have water. God delivered them into a land that was not their own. When they got there, He said, I like these gods they've got. You know, walk over here and do this. And God continually gave them a second chance and a second chance. He raised up judges. He gave them a king when it was wrong for them to ask for a king. They continued to worship idols. Yet God continued to renew the covenant. He continued to remind them of his faithfulness. He continued to show up for his people. And so I think it is right, then, because of these reassuring truths of who God is and His path faithfulness, that David should rightfully command his own soul. In verse 5, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Notice there, he is not saying, my soul awaits. He's saying, as a command, for God alone, O my soul, everything that is in me, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him, the Lord. It is right that he says this. It is right that he instructs the people to trust in him at all times and to pour out their hearts before him in verse 8. Because of who God is and because of what he has done, it is right that we wait on him and we have our confidence assured in him. Furthermore, another truth we can get from this. Not only does David Encourage us to wait upon the Lord and be assured in Him. But he also warns the people to trust God alone and not false refuges. He explains that God is a true refuge, but there are these other ones that seek to draw our attention away from God, right? He says in verse 6, He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him in all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the bounces they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, send not your heart on them. David warns us of these, because our memory is short. And we like the shiny things. Sometimes we don't only like the shiny things, we like the things that look practical that are going to keep us secure. We think, well, this will this will this will be good. Maybe it's not best, but it's good. First, false refuge he talks about is the, the confidence of men to be safe by who you know, who's in charge, to be assured in anyone who is not God. The Israelites. Throughout their history, they feel insecure. They want to be like the other nations, they worship their gods. They live their lifestyles. They hoard possessions. They are unjust the poor. They were tempted to find their security not in the Lord their God, but in the same ways as the nations. And it's not set out right here, but What David is communicating is that to trust in anyone that is not God is idolatry. For you to put your trust, for us to put our trust in anyone who is not God, that is idolatry. Not only does David say this is not good, that we should not trust in these people, but he gives us reason. Earlier in verse 3 and 4, David was a man of power. He was the king of Israel, but there were people attacking him. There were people who take pleasure in falsehood. They blessed him with their mouths, but in really they cursed him. were saying, do not put your trust in men because they will turn on you. Unlike God. God wants what is best for us. He says, do not put your trust in men Not because I want to keep good things from you, but because I want the best for you. And this is not what is best for you. I am what is best for you, says God. We've been doing this since the garden. We think that God is holding out uh, something from us. So we say, okay, I'm going to take it into my hands. I know what's best for me. And what happens? Sin into the world, brokenness. There's division, there's hurt, there's pain, there's death. There's separation from God. God wants what is best for us. David is saying to his audience and to us today take not your refuge in the confidence of men, for they will turn on you. But also, why would you be confident in a breath and in a delusion? And David can say that confidently because he was one of those men of high estate. If the people who are that are saying, don't trust these people, you should probably listen to them. Because of what David was, he could see that they were but a delusion. I like how he says that the people of low estate are a breath, so they're actually something physical. But the people of high estate, they're just a delusion. What is that? God is not trying to keep something from us, but he's saying, Do not put your trust in men. Put your trust in me. You can count on me. The second false refuge that David talks about is the dependence upon wealth and the desire to secure wealth. I noticed there was a verse up there earlier where it talks about how money is the root of all evil, and it was saying, well, actually, the scriptures say money is the root of all kinds of evil. And yes, money is not inherently a bad thing. But I do believe that we have to be very careful, especially living in the wealthiest nation in the world, with money. Because it so easily ensnares us. Because when we have money, not only do we have status, we have security, or so we think. And to have your security, to put your security in anything that is not God, that is idolatry. Uh, The church fathers, the early Christians, they were actually very wary of money because they knew what it could do to their souls. We actually have these accounts, even the scriptures, where wealthy people like Barnabas, they gave what they had to give to other people. I think it's funny. They saw the money as a gift from God. But I also think it's funny that they also wanted it as far away from them as possible. (laughs) Um, And that's a challenge. Especially given that we are coming out of a pandemic. We're experiencing inflation. And it's so easy to want to put away and put away and put away our trust in that money. David is saying, do not put your trust in these things, put your trust in the Lord. We see in the person of David this great reliance and trust in the Lord. We also have to acknowledge that though David had this great faith he knew that salvation came from the Lord. He didn't have the full view. I think the final, script, uh, the final truth that we can see in this psalm, that we can, once we see it, we see the whole psalm clearer. And actually we see scripture itself, the entirety of God's word more clear. And this truth is that God is our one true refuge through Christ alone. Yes, God is our refuge through Jesus Christ. David had this great faith, but he did not have the view of Calvary that we have as believers. This is a man who was a man after God's own heart, but you and I have a privilege that he did not have, that we know the other side of Calvary. That we know, yes, our salvation comes from God and it came from God dying on a tree for us and then having victory over sin and death and the devil. Because The thing is, we get to certain script, uh, scriptures like verses 11 and 12 where David says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. The power belongs to God. Amen. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Amen and amen. Then we get to the last verse where it says, for you will render to a man according to his work. Did y'all read that? For you will render to a man according to his work. David's established that God is all-powerful, and that to God belongs steadfast love. But if we read this without Jesus, that God will render to a man or to a woman according to their work, that is bad news for us. Because I know when I was confessing those sins to the Lord, I knew it was in my soul. And I knew if God is rendering to me what I've done, it's not good. Before a holy God, what do I have but rebellion? I do not deserve a reward from the God of all creation, but instead I deserve his wrath for I was his enemy. If we read the scriptures without Jesus, it's not good for us. It's not good for us. Scripture establishes that we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and that for the wages of sin is death. That's coming from the New Testament as well. That's not good for us. It puts us in a dilemma. God loves his people, desires to be with them. But God's also just. I always have to be reminded God is more loving than any of us could ever be. And he also hates sin more than any of us do, ever could. and we're on the receiving end, we're like, God, don't be just. But then when we see all the evil in the world, people being enslaved, wars and famine, we see the history of evil in our own country. A just God has to judge because he's also a good God. If God were to look on the evils of slavery and not to judge, he would not be a good God. He would be acting out of his character. So a good God has to judge sin. He has to deal with evil. But what does God do that he's also loving and desires to be with his people and he desires to not destroy his people. Thank God that he has a weird sense of justice. Because though he saw our sin, yet he loved us. And that God saw it just our sin on his son give us what Jesus deserved he set us free and sent his son to pay our price to atone for our sins I want to know how does God reconcile these things. We look at the cross and see what Jesus has done for us. And when we view this psalm and all of scripture through the lens of Jesus, everything becomes clear, It comes into focus. Suddenly everything's brighter. We can understand things more clearly. We can sing these songs of Jesus, these psalms, that's what uh, Timothy and Kathy Keller call the Psalms. Because not only when we sing the Psalms are we singing them about Jesus as God, he is deserving of our worship and our praise. We're also singing them to a God who sang these same Psalms when he was like us. The scripture this morning said that we have a great high priest who was tempted in every way that we were, yet who was without sin. So therefore let us draw close to God's throne in times of trouble. Jesus comes into all these situations, and he's with us. We can say, My soul alone waits, in silence for him comes my salvation, because we know the God from whom our salvation comes is the God that is with us in the silence. I don't know about you, but I found oftentimes in the silence, in the pain, in the questions, I don't feel close to God. You know, I woke up this morning. And I didn't feel close to God. And I was reminded, it was it's a scary moment when that happens. Um, but I was reminded of one of my favorite songs by King's Kaleidoscope. Um, it's called A Prayer. And the singer is asking, Jesus, where are you? Am I still beside you? Jesus, where are you? And he gets quiet. And uh it's quiet. It says Jesus, where are you? And in the song, the singer sings as if Jesus is responding, he says. I'm right beside you. I feel what you feel. And I'm here to hold you when death is too real. You know I died too. I was terrified. I gave myself for you. I was crucified because I love you. We have a Lord who not only saved us from our sin, we not only have the hope that he will one day come and make all things new and make all evil things untrue, but he can relate to us when we're tempted, when we feel alone and when we are suffering. We have moments like David, we feel like we're attacked on all sides. We have the assurance, even when we don't feel like Jesus is there, but we know he is there. Because that's what the gospel says. That's the truth of scripture, that even when my emotions don't make me feel good, even when I don't feel like God is there, he's there. And I know it because God gave his son for me and for you. We have moments like verse 5, where we say to our own souls, soul, wait in silence. We don't even feel like waiting. We don't feel like trying anymore. We're not doing it off sheer willpower. But instead, those moments of waiting become times of joy. Because we know that Jesus has promised to always be with us. Matthew 28, 20 says, even to the end of the age. And God has put his spirit inside us to conform us to the image of his son. So we know we can trust in the Lord. We can proclaim our confidence in the Lord even when we don't feel it. Even when circumstances are bad and even when the other refuges seem really good and seem like really amazing options. And we know there's Jesus with us and God inside of us. Our confidence can be firmly in the Lord because we know who God is. We know his character. We know what he's done because we know his son Jesus. I have the feeling that there is someone here who is closed off to Jesus and I'm not one to shame anyone so I just want to put that out there. I don't know where you are but I would urge you to do the same as the prodigal son and come home to the father. Know that he loves you and he's for you. He's given his best for you and that's his son Jesus. God paid such a high price for you. I know we have other application questions um, for y'all to process through this week, but I, if I could, because I talked about observation, interpretation, but there's also that application. So I had to throw in some application if that's okay. And I think it's some really practical stuff. So the first one is go home this week and meditate on Psalm 62. Not only that, but get specific. Acknowledge that you are going through things and write out those trials and those conflicts in your life. Those things that give you anxiety. A reason to be shaken. And sit with God in that moment and ask him to reveal to you how he is more than enough and how he can meet your needs. Just by who he is. Not in what he can do because of who he is and what he has done. And then a second thing Ask him to reveal to you all those idols, those things that you look to that are not him. And confess those idols to God. He's faithful and just. Finally, the Psalms have a way of directing our will. This is kind of a weird idea. We don't really like this, especially as Americans. We like being able to do what we want to do. Um, And when we don't want to do something, we just don't do it. But The thing about the Psalms is oftentimes the Psalms are like this. They say, even though my circumstances are this, I will be confident in the Lord, and I am confident in the Lord. When the enemy surrounds, and my heart grows faint within, when the darkness overwhelms, And my fears are pressing in. I will trust in you, O Lord. In the silence I will wait. I will stand upon your word. You're my solid rock and my salvation. My steadfast hope that won't be shaken. My soul will wait. My soul will wait for you. What does that darkness look like? What does it look for your heart to grow faint? Even more, what does it look like to trust in the Lord? What does it mean that he is your rock and your salvation And because of him, you will not be shaken.